0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Skip to the Gay Parts. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is the podcast where I watch an entire series of television, pick out the queer or queer-coded characters, and write you all a book report about them. And in this episode, I'm taking you all out to the Bahamas in the time of pirates. Because, listeners, it is time that we discuss the absolutely iconic queer pirate show that is Black Sails. Throughout this episode, you will hear analysis that I have made about seasons one through three of Black Sails. I say seasons one through three because season four was just so awe inspiring, so jam packed of queer narrative that when watching it back for this episode, I honestly blacked out and couldn't fathom how to pull it apart. And that is why we always keep smart friends around everybody because my good friend, Lainey Rose, known as the Lainey Rose on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, all the places, came to my rescue and helped wrap this baby up. So in season four, you will hear some in-depth analysis by the Lainey Rose herself. So let's talk pirates. It is a well-known fact that queer people love pirates. The fashion, the hair, the swords, the gender envy is off the charts and the queerness abounds no matter what the adaptation. Pirates are made for queer people to be obsessed with them. And for that, we say thank you. Now let's be honest, when we were growing up, we all had our moments with Elizabeth Swan, Will Turner, Jack Sparrow. Did we want to be them? Did we want to date them? Was the answer just yes, with no other context? Pirate displays like that had us sitting back and going, Huh, I don't know why this is for me, a queer person. But it is. This is for me. And you'd be right about that. However, these pirates that I've mentioned are all still pirates that just appealed to queer people. They were not shown us to be queer pirates. But the Starz original series, Black Sails, provides viewers with pirates that are queer people. Not just ones I'm interpreting as queer. Not blink-and-you-miss-it suggestions of queerness. No, just actual queer characters who have actual queer relationships that we actually see on the actual show. Yes, these queer pirates of Black Sails are the main characters of the show who stay alive the whole time and get, relatively, happy endings. Black Sails is the queer pirate TV show that we all need and not nearly enough of us talk about it. So let's take a minute to break down the actual plot of the show. Beneath the queerness of it all, Black Sails does act as kind of a prequel to the story of Treasure Island, telling the backstory of the pirate Long John Silver. And though Long John Silver does play a significant role in Black Sails, and there is queer coding all over that smooth-talking long-haired man who drips with gender, he's not the only character we're shining the spotlight on today. I'd argue that he's not even the main character. Though truthfully, this show works as well as it does because it is an ensemble piece, Everyone's story is as important as the person next to them. But the main thread pulling the show along is the long and heart-wrenching saga of Captain James Flint. And that is the man we are here to talk about today. Captain James Flint is the over-educated, wise-above-his-station pirate captain who leads men with eloquent speeches and the might of his sword. He is also a man of many secrets, including his life before piracy, and the love of his life. Now I keep using queer as the moniker to refer to James Flint, because through the show he's not shown a specific preference for one gender or another, and we do see him with the character of Miranda and Thomas, both in real and genuine ways. But I will always be obsessed with the way that his love for Thomas and the loss of that great love in his life runs quietly at first, and then is bracingly loud underneath absolutely everything in this show. I guess you could say, I ship it. Yeah, that was a cheap pirate joke, and I'm not sorry. So let's start at the beginning of it all for Captain James Flint. Because when we first meet him, he's in the middle of leading his men on a raid of a merchant ship. Winning a prize, as the pirates in the show call it. And we learn through this prize-taking and the rest of the episode that follows that he is looking for something very specific. He's looking for the schedule of a ship carrying stolen Spanish gold, the equivalent of over five million pieces of eight. Anybody going into the show blind would be introduced to Captain Flint as just another pirate captain, out for the biggest haul of his life. More gold than anyone has ever laid eyes on. The Urca Gold. But we all know the general concept of pirates. Swashbuckling, plundering ships, yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum and all that. It's an easy concept to reel an audience in with, and Black Sails does just that. It gets that audience that's here for a fight, a treasure hunt, and a good time. And then it very subtly reveals itself to be so much more than any of us could have imagined. Because we quickly learn that James may be the fierce captain of a strong crew of pirates, But he's not the stereotypical pirate captain we're used to. He's not Jack Sparrow just stumbling around the ship drunk and crazy. This is a man with a strong mission. He is well-read. He is well-spoken. He's a captain whose men raid the ships for all the valuables hidden below deck. But he also makes sure to check the captain's quarters for any interesting books to add to his collection. The pirates in this show know how to swing a sword and load a cannon, but our main characters are also intelligent and strategic and masters of manipulation. Because Black Sails may serve as the backstory of Treasure Island's Long John Silver, but this is no kid-friendly pirate tale. Oh, this show is graphic and violent and literary and planned every moment of this show is on purpose. Every second of the story comes with a reason. A large part of the show is the pirates within it battling for the ownership and soul of Nassau, which is an island in the Bahamas that the pirates have taken from England and claimed as their own. It's where they can land and rest and feast and fuck and sell their wares and plan their next prize. And when we begin the show, all of this action is overseen by one woman who runs the island, Eleanor Guthrie. In only the second episode, Flint comes into the office of Eleanor Guthrie, and the two of them sit down to discuss how, though he is back from his planned trip to find the map to the Urca Gold, he has been sidetracked by missing a page in the captain's log. And in the middle of the arguing that ensues about the mission to the Urca Gold being impossible without that page, Flint launches into a story about the Greek hero Odysseus. He describes the tale of Odysseus getting off his ship and being instructed to walk inland with an oar until someone mistook it for a shovel. Because that would mean he has reached a place where a man had never seen the sea, and it is there that he could finally know peace. And that is it right there. Flint says that this is all he wants, to give up the sea and find peace He lays that out in the second episode of the series and it remains his ultimate goal throughout the entire goddamn thing. And throughout the series, the reason why this is his goal shifts from being fueled by anger and heartbreak and sorrow to betrayal. But no matter the motivation pushing him there, his goal remains the same. The whole fucking series. And it's laid out for us in episode two. Two. Every moment is on purpose. Every step of the story means something. You will hear me and others, like my friend Lainey Rose, refer to this show sometimes as the great straight bait. And that is for two reasons. Number one, it's very funny. Objectively, it's incredibly funny to flip the queer baiting on its head and use it against straight people. It's hilarious. Number two is, again, people with no context going into this show just think it's a typical pirate show. I started watching it because my dad was watching it because he likes pirates and it was a show about pirates. You take a ship, you get your gold, you watch some sex and violence, enjoy the pirates. But the brilliance of Black Sails is how subtle its storytelling really is. Keeping the audience that's here for the pirateness of it all engaged while weaving a complex tale of queer love and righteous anger right under their noses. And we can never forget the woman that helps contribute to the great straight bait of it all. Enter Miranda Hamilton or as the other pirates on the island know her, Mrs. Barlow. Captain Flint gets injured in a fight early in season one, and at the end of that episode we see him stumbling into a home set far inland on the island, a place far away from the brothels and bars of the main trading area where a distinguished woman is home alone, playing the harpsichord. And when Flint comes falling, bleeding into her home, she's not even surprised to see him there. She simply gets up to tend to his wounds as he passes out and we fade to black for a moment. And after that moment in that episode, we see over and over again, Flint going to Miranda's home for comfort and safety. We see them have sex and care for each other and act as if they are together. In any other show, their love story would be the main focus of Flint outside of his piracy. And for a while, that is exactly what the show leads you to believe. We even hear other members of Flint's crew tell the story of the mysterious Barlow Woman that Flint doesn't talk about. There's a story told to Billy Bones, Flint's right-hand man, about a ship Flint made his men hunt down, promising them jewels and riches from the haul. However, the trip yielded no such prize and it was revealed to be an excuse for an execution of the couple on board the ship. It was a mission Flint set out on so he could kill those specific people on that specific ship, and we're told that it was all for the Barlow woman. Like she has some kind of unreal hold on him, and she dictates his every move, including telling him where to take his men and who to kill for her. Billy Bones eventually gives in and wants to get to the bottom of all the stories, so he simply asks Flint who Mrs. Barlow is. Flint says he's heard the stories and the ones that claim that Mrs. Barlow is a witch that controls his every move, and they only exist because it is more interesting than men saying their captain makes his home with a nice Puritan woman who shares his love of books. However, Billy Bones is a smart man and asks, Is that even the truth? And we hang on Flint, pointedly not answering that question, leaving us all in the dark about the truth, as well as Billy. And after that question gets put into our minds... Some more little hints about Flint and Miranda's true relationship start to get peppered into the show. Like when Flint is hiding a man at Miranda's house, and he comes home to see her showing the man a book from her shelf. Something about that particular book she is sharing makes Flint furious. He asks why, why, out of all of the books on that shelf, would you hurt me by choosing that one to share? To which Miranda says that that book was something she shared with Thomas, her husband and she refuses to forget about him. And, oh, this book was something that Miranda shared with her husband? So then why is Flint getting so upset about it? How is this his issue, and where is her husband? Again, the beauty of this show is in its subtlety. Flint and Miranda also get into epic fights, like most television couples do. But part of the way the straight bait works here is that Miranda... Is obviously in love and devoted to Flint. She clearly loves him and is willing to do whatever she can to keep him safe. She may have a mysterious husband in her past but Flint is her present and you can tell she wants him to be her future. So she fights because she loves him even if he can't love her back. She even goes as far as writing a letter to try and get him pardoned by the Crown in England for his crimes. A letter that when discovered causes so much trouble on his ship and leads him to come back screaming mad about it. He is angry, not only because of the chaos the letter caused, but he tells her that if he asks for a pardon for his crimes, it means he has to apologize to England, which is something he refuses to do. And that's when we start getting short little glimpses into Flint and Miranda's backstory. He tells her why he will absolutely never be begging England for forgiveness. He says, quote, They took everything from us and then they call me a monster. The moment I sign that pardon, the moment I ask for one, I proclaim to the world that they were right. This ends when I grant them my forgiveness, not the other way around. Now, people who may not be looking for the queerness in the show could think that the story they've been told about Flint and Miranda is true, that they had an affair, and it shamed Miranda's husband Thomas so much that Flint and Miranda had to flee to Nassau. But Flint being called a monster by England? The look in his eyes when Miranda mentions Thomas? Those of us who like to queer a narrative have our alarm bells ringing. Within all of this personal information suddenly being revealed, we're also watching Flint over and over again have to fight to keep the captaincy of his own ship. Because his men don't trust him. Because his friends betray him. And it leads him to being mutinied against while they're all standing on a beach just an arm's reach away from the gold they came for as it is guarded by Spanish soldiers. And then we see this silver-tongued man using his power of persuasion, weaponizing his rousing words and his obvious bravery to help his men steal a fucking Spanish warship. Effectively illustrating to all of us Just what a ruthless and brilliant pirate captain Flint truly is. Which is why it's then so surprising when we start getting flashbacks to scenes of his former life. His life before Nassau. A life where Captain James Flint was Lieutenant James McGraw. A member of the Royal Navy. And the right-hand man to the person who was trying to take down all of piracy in Nassau. That person, of course, was Thomas Hamilton. Throughout all of these flashback scenes, we learn a lot about Captain James Flint. We learn that his real name is James McGraw, and the fact that before he was a ruthless pirate captain, he was a man who at first had to prove to Thomas Hamilton that he was a worthy lieutenant to stand by his side in the mission to end piracy. Now, Thomas Hamilton could have been painted as the bad guy and the symbol of colonial rule here, but he just isn't. He's a kind man who wants to instill structure and order to the island. He wants to grant the pirates a pardon and put them to work. And yes, that is a symbol of colonial rule, but what I mean is that he isn't being villainized in this aspect for it. Because he thinks that giving the pirates purpose will make them good citizens of the country. And to that notion, Flint delivers the line, a man trying to change the world fails for one simple and unavoidable reason. Everyone else. Another thing that keeps us from seeing Thomas as the villain in this scenario is simply the way that James looks at him. Now that we've had the time to garner affection for Captain Flint, this looking back on him before the sense of piracy makes us see Thomas through his eyes. There's an air of respect, of fondness, that is apparent in their every scene together. And while we jump back and forth in time between James's backstory and the current goings-on at Nassau, we see tensions mount in both stories. Between Flint and the pirate captain, Vane, who's taking over the island, and between James McGraw and those in his old life. We see James and Miranda start an affair with one another. So a part of that story told about the Barlow woman is confirmed. James did have an affair with her. But that's not the entirety of his involvement with the Hamiltons, not by a long shot. James gets told in a flashback by one of his naval superiors that James's passions are different from the passions of all other men that James's passions are dark and wild, and that makes him unpredictable. And we don't have it confirmed at this point in the story. But looking back with all of the information of the series, that line was about James's queerness, and you can see it displayed on his face. That is how he feels about his queerness in that moment. It's the beginning of framing him into the monster of this story. This information about his dark and wild passions is delivered after James gets into a bar fight with a fellow officer who was shit-talking Thomas. James was so offended by his fellow soldier bad-mouthing Thomas Hamilton that his rage boiled over and he started a bar fight. His dark and wild passions are pretty plainly his queerness. His queerness is the difference. And his passion and anger come to a head in the story of his old life when James is having dinner with Thomas, Miranda, and Thomas's father, where they're pitching Thomas's idea for pardoning the pirates and welcoming them back into the world rather than executing them on the spot. Mr. Hamilton starts to lay in to Thomas about what an abysmal plan that is, and that's when James stands up and defends Thomas, saying that his father has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. Even though we'd only seen James on the fence about Thomas's plan before, we again see a moment where his affection for this man boils over, and he screams at Mr. Hamilton, the father, far higher ranking in the military than either James or Thomas, and orders him to leave his own house. Now, time in the James backstory portion in the show jumps around after that. And we see James and Miranda fight about their affair. And what is happening in this house gets men hanged. Again, the only impropriety that we, the audience, have seen is between James and Miranda. So we're led to believe that the thing happening in that house that gets men hanged is adultery. That if James were to be found out sleeping with Thomas's wife, he would be hanged. And it all starts to spin out of control. James gets fired after blowing up on Thomas's father like that, and he's told to leave London because of, quote, what he did in that house. And it is made clear that if he does not disappear, he will be held to charges for his, quote, offenses. He storms back to Thomas's house after his firing and finds Miranda in tears and Thomas gone. He's been whisked off to a hospital under the guise that he is struck with grief about learning about the affair between James and Miranda. To which James asks, OUR affair? An even further push towards the fact that we are not being told the whole story about what was happening in that house. James asking OUR affair, in shock, Is a heavy implication that there was another affair happening in that house that we are not talking about. Their friend Peter Ash offers to help them escape somewhere far away so that they won't be bothered by the crown. But James is enraged. He's been wronged and his world has been turned upside down and someone's gonna fucking pay for it. So, yes, he agrees to leave with Miranda, but not to hide away anywhere. Oh no, he's going right to the heart of the piracy Thomas was trying to control. He is going to Nassau. Flashing back to the present timeline, Flint and Miranda ride this wave of anger that the show has laid out and start fighting about that very night that we've just seen, what led them to Nassau in the first place, and then everything comes to a head. She is yet another person now telling him his anger is his problem, but she keeps pushing and says that he acts out of rage and vengeance and shame because he is ashamed of how much he loved Thomas. Then suddenly we get flashes to the past again, to the moments after James kicks Thomas's father out of the house. Thomas walks up to James, almost wordlessly, and they fall into each other, kissing right there at the dinner table. So now it's been revealed, James and Thomas also had an affair. They fell deeply in love and they did not hide it from Miranda. She knew about it the entire time. But back in the present, Flint tells her his rage isn't from shame about thomas he says the only thing he is ashamed of is not doing something to save thomas when he had the chance and then we see him reach for that book he had been so angry about earlier and we see the inscription on the inside of the front page it reads to james my truest love no no shame thomas and that feels like the underlying theme of flint through this all he has no shame He has regrets, but he will not be apologizing or begging for pardons from the people who he does not respect. But sometimes he wavers. He gets persuaded to do things that Miranda asks, like take an innocent girl another crew has kidnapped back home to her father, Peter Ash, in the Carolina colonies, thinking that since he knew Peter, since they were friends, maybe an arrangement can be made. This is him still having one foot in his old life, Being torn apart at the seams with the idea that maybe, just maybe, if he does this one thing, he can go back to the man he once was. Within that journey, we also learn more about his early days in piracy. We hear again about the boat that he took with his men that was really an execution. And we learn that, yes, he did take help from Miranda to get there. But what drove him to that ship was the fact that Thomas had died because of his own father. And it was Thomas's father that Flint tracked down on that ship and slaughtered for revenge. Then we learn about how Captain Flint became Captain Flint, that he took the name from a man that Flint heard of when he was young, a killer whose name Flint never forgot. He tells Miranda of when he met his old friend Mr. Gates and how his pirate self came into being in that very moment. Quote, When Mr. Gates asked me my name, I feared the man I was about to create. I feared that someone born of such dark things would consume me were I not careful, and I was determined to only wear him for a while and then dispose of him when his purpose was complete, and I thought of that story, of the man I thought to be a killer, and I thought am I ready to let him go? Truthfully, I've wanted to send him out to sea long ago. And again we return to the point that all Flint wants is to walk inland with an oar until someone mistakes it for a shovel and finally find some peace. And this deal with his old friend Peter Ash in the colonies is another way he believes he can get there. When he finally does get to his old friend Ash's table, having returned his daughter unharmed, he still has hope to get what he wants. A mild amount of that peace. But he is told the only way to get forgiveness for his crimes is to offer the information of his relationship with Thomas as if it is the great flaw in his character. Like it is the thing that drove him to become James Flint the mad pirate captain. Once again, equating his love for Thomas, his queerness, as something dark and bad that drove him to do dark and bad things. And James is so desperate for the end to it all, for some peace, that he almost agrees. He almost gives in to those terms, abandoning everything he said before about having no shame about Thomas. But that's until Miranda stops him, She points out a clock in the corner of the room. A clock she recognizes from her old home that she does not remember giving to Peter Ash. And it's revealed that Peter actually partnered with Thomas's father and that this man is the entire reason Thomas was caught. Thomas's relationship with James was exposed because of Peter Ash. This man who now dares to stand in front of Flint offering him freedom in a new life if he would just admit to his sins. Flint is struck cold and quiet by this information, but Miranda has something to say. She is full of rage and is spitting her anger as loud as she can. She stands up for James and says, how dare Peter ask him to lay himself bare in such a way, when Peter is too much of a coward to even admit his role in getting Thomas killed. For the first time in the series, we see Miranda truly angry. She is fucking mad and she screams that she wants this town to be burned to the ground and she wants peter swinging from a noose and she wants to pull the fucking lever herself and then in the middle of her rage she is shot and killed in front of flint and right then as she hits the floor his hopes of being forgiven for his crimes are long gone and he gets put on trial in the middle of the town being forced to watch Miranda's body get pelted with rotten food for the angry townspeople's enjoyment. And when he does finally speak to the crowd in his own defense, he says that his only regret was coming to this place expecting to come to an understanding. He looks at his former friend and the people of the jury in the eyes and says, Everyone is a monster to someone. Since you are so convinced that I am yours, I will be it. Which is just an incredible character-defining moment. Because over and over again, James's queerness has been equated to his darkness and his anger and his shame. But this is a character who has now said that he feels no shame about his love for Thomas Hamilton. And the things he has done ever since losing him in his anger and grief. This is Flint's final breaking point of being unapologetic in his anger and knowing that no matter what, he will never be perceived by polite society as anything other than a monster. So he gives up trying and says, Fuck it. Fine. You want a monster? I will show you a goddamn monster. And then to add even more chaos to the moment of this trial, Charles Vane, Flint's nemesis through this series, who continually tried to kill and take down Flint up until this point, appears... ...to get himself captured, and informs Flint of the plan he has hatched to set Flint free. Because they may be enemies, but people know and respect the pirate Captain Flint. And if he hangs, all of piracy will suffer. The enemy of my enemy is my friend is a wonderful trope that this show implores often. And it never ever gets old, especially in this moment with Charles Vane and Captain Flint. So Flint and Vane sit at their trial... And quietly talk about just escaping the gallows. But then Flint says, They're all trying so hard to convince themselves that they have nothing to be afraid of. How is us running going to change that? So Vane asks, What do you suggest if not just running? And Flint says, We remind them that they were right to be afraid. They will be the monsters you believe them to be. Vane lays this out for the crowd around them and then gives the signal to his men who are waiting on the walls of the city. And they rain hellfire on that town. In it all, Flint and Vane team up to fight their way to freedom, even with shackles on their hands. Before leaving the city, Flint puts a sword through his old friend Peter Ash, the man responsible for the deaths of two people Flint loved. And he turns Peter's head to see Miranda's body standing in her coffin, and he says her word, will be the last word of this place. Her word being the order of Peter's death and burning the city they stand in to the fucking ground. And so Flint gets back on his ship and before they depart, he orders them to unload their cannons and take down whatever is left of the town they've just escaped. And the act of what happened in that place, the events of the day Flint almost gave in, but decided instead to cast aside the notion of forgiveness in exchange for vengeance, it changes Captain James Flint completely, which makes the beginning of season three hit so hard. Flint has fully embraced his monster side and has now teamed up with Charles Vane and made a reputation for himself as the pirate captain that comes to your island if you hang even a single pirate in your town. There is no mercy. The entire town is being cut down and burned to the ground. And through this all, we also see a visual depiction of James's mental state. Through all this fighting and slaying, The image of Miranda lying dead before him haunts his every day, weighing heavy in his mind. His newfound reign of terror has England now pushing more forcefully towards their efforts to reclaim Nassau, including implementing the pardons that Thomas and James conceived an entire lifetime ago. So because of this, Flint and his crew are now offered pardons in exchange for surrender. And again, he refuses to relent. But he points out to all of his men that England would not have so many pardons ready to give unless they were fucking terrified about the threat the pirates now present. He talks his crew into joining him in rejecting those pardons. And instead of laying down in surrender to a country that would rather see them dead, decide to run into a storm that will almost definitely kill them. But, miraculously, it doesn't. They get through the storm, but end up stuck with no wind to carry their sails, stranded in the middle of the ocean. Being laid out in this calm and vulnerable moment, we see Flint again having visions of Miranda haunting him. And eventually, he speaks to her. He tells her that when he lost Thomas, he raged, he cried, he was distraught. It truly did break his heart. But losing Miranda is completely ruining him from the inside out. And she explains in whatever dreamlike state he has entered that that's because she's been a little bit of everything to him. A mistress when he needed love, a wife when he needed a partner, and a mother of sorts. She's the thing that helped him birth Captain Flint, and that means she's seen him completely, and him losing that is a lot for him to process. And within this moment of his crew being stranded, John Silver pulls himself closer to Flint's side. Convincing him, when they are alone in a longboat together, that the two of them are better friends than enemies. John Silver confesses that he went behind Flint's back and gave away the Urk gold that had been Flint's one and only ultimate prize, the mission that started the series. But Silver also gave up his claim to the portion of it, because being in Flint's crew with these men meant more to him than his share of the prize. And with that, let's take a minute to discuss John Silver and James Flint's history. I am well aware of the Silver Flint shippers out in the world, and you do have merits. You make good points. John Silver and James Flint's dynamic is complex and complicated and so fucking interesting. In the original book, Treasure Island, Flint's name is only mentioned in the past tense and in mockery as the name of John Silver's parrot, because in the book, it is said that John Silver is the only person who James Flint had ever feared. Which is hard to believe in Black Sail's beginning because John Silver started as a man hiding in the kitchen of a ship Captain Flint's men were taking. And he was the one that stole the page that led to the Urca Gold and kept that information to himself and used it to firmly plant himself on Flint's shit list in episode one. And that shit list is where he truly remains until about halfway through season three when everything comes to a head on that stranded longboat. Up until this point, John Silver and Captain James Flint have had a relationship of frustration and reluctant partnership. John only survived his first encounter with Flint on that plundered ship by making himself valuable as both the cook, which was a lie, and the only person who knew the contents of the missing page, which was true. If John Silver is skilled at one thing in this world, it's making himself valuable enough to keep around. He's a survivor, that one. and. There's a conversation to be had about the romantic vibes that do begin to build between Silver and Flint toward the end of the series. I am aware that there are Silver Flint shippers who see the signs from the very beginning, and I'm not going to count you wrong about that. Because as my good friend Lainey Rose says, the series finale does not work if there is no love between these two men. It simply doesn't. However, I also agree that their relationship does not truly begin to blossom in a romantic sense until the last two episodes. But now, in this moment, in the longboat, is when they stop pushing and pulling to try to murder one of each other. They kill a fucking shark together to save their crew from starvation. And in that, their partnership is solidified. However, now that that bond is strong, they are still stranded in the middle of the ocean. That is until they come across an island that they never knew existed. They land on that island. They revel in finally seeing land and not being stuck in the middle of a still calm water. And then Flint and his stranded crew are taken captive by the inhabitants of that island. And Flint confesses that in his past life, he helped build the pardons that are now making their way to the shores of Nassau and wonders if accepting them is the thing he's being shown he must do. He wonders, maybe this is the way I say goodbye to Captain Flint. But then when he gets captured, he wonders maybe this is the way he says goodbye to Captain Flint. Not with a pardon and an embrace back in England, but here on this island, a prisoner of his own actions. The fact that his entire crew is taken prisoner almost breaks him. He is tired and beaten down and grieving, and he truly believes that this is the end of them all. That's until he sees who runs the island. It's a friend of his from Nassau. And because of that close relationship and Flint's reputation as a pirate captain, James is asked to help keep the island safe from any more outside invasions. And once that deal is made and the crew gains its freedom again, there is a little bit more time to solidify this new bond of friendship between Flint and Silver. In the lead-up to the final battle against England for the soul of Nassau, Flint and John have a night by the fire where Flint reveals everything about his relationship with Thomas, and what led him to this point. The fact that his and Thomas's relationship was found out, what drove Flint to piracy, Miranda's death, everything. And John says he's sorry that that happened to Flint. He's truly sorry to hear of Thomas's fate simply because of the love he had for James. But pretty much all Silver gets from that story is that everybody who gets close to Flint gets their asses killed. And he does not want to be the next one that happens to. John Silver... He survives no matter what. And in that, he contemplates a future in which he might have to be the one that puts Captain Flint down. To which Flint replies, In terms of our future, and the danger you believe you may pose to me, bear this in mind. I have survived starvation, a tempest, pirate hunters, jealous captains, mutinous crews, angry lords, a queen, a king, and the goddamn British Navy. So to whatever extent you may be concerned that someday we will clash, worried that though today we be friends, someday you'll have no choice but to be my end, I won't worry too much. And that quote is said in a voiceover as we get a flash to future events of John and Flint standing on opposite sides of a battle that only one of them is going to come out of. But season four starts with John and Flint in that alliance with one another and the other pirate captains we know that continue to fight for the soul of Nassau. They really believe they have the advantage, but they underestimate the Englishman who has taken over their pirate island. Their ship gets caught in a trap in the port of Nassau, And Flint loses his ship and half of his men, including John Silver, who falls overboard and nearly drowns trying to get his prosthetic leg out of the ship's sinking netting. And then on the shore, Flint and Maddie, who is John's new partner and the de facto leader of the island where they were once stranded, they stand on the shore and believe Silver to be dead after the horrible loss in the battle to retake Nassau. After this, they scramble to build an army to face their English enemy, and Maddie and Flint try to free the slaves of the island, but run into a snag that all seven plantations have to revolt all at once, or they would face dire consequences from their owners. And within it all, Flint and Maddie get double-crossed by Flint's former right-hand man, Billy Bones, who, interestingly enough, has been working in the background the whole time John has been gone, weaving a tale of a fearsome pirate who will save them all by the name of Long John Silver. Little did he know, Long John Silver is a hard man to kill, because while all of this is happening on the island with Flint and Maddie, John is washed up on another part of the island, taken captive for a moment, but eventually gets his freedom. John Silver. He survives no matter what. He finds Maddie and works with them to use John's name and John's return to help free Nassau. Flint, is always one to use the bedtime nightmares told about pirates to their advantage and this new tale of Long John Silver is no different. And within all of this, Flint has some truly stunning lines that are fucking hard to shake off. Such as, if we were able to take Nassau, if we are able to expose the illusion that England is not inevitable, if we are able to incite a revolt that spreads across the new world, then yeah, I imagine people are going to notice. But, Even with the legend of Long John Silver on their side, even with their attempt to free all of the slaves of the island, even being led by Captain James Flint himself, they still lose Nassau to England and the governor occupying her. They have to deal with the governor bringing them into a trap the lore being Maddie, the woman John loves, and the disagreement he has with Flint about whether or not to try and rescue her is what really starts cracking the foundation of partnership that they have managed to build. And now that we're creeping closer to Silver Flint territory and the crux of season four, it's time I tell you all what Lainey Rose has to say. The next few minutes that I'm about to say have been entirely written by the brilliant Lainey Rose. I simply have the honor of reading them. So... In Lainey Rose's words, I think what is most fascinating about Flint and his queerness is the way it drives every part of him. Flint is someone driven by his past. Everything that happened with Thomas and the trauma he endured, it defines him. It's his motivation. So therefore, his queerness is irrevocably intertwined with his story, his motivations. And though he's not the only queer character, there is no story... There is no black sales if not for Flint's queerness. This makes him stand out from other characters in a sense, because while Max is everyone's favorite lesbian, her queerness isn't quite literally the driving force of the show. I think this is important to understand when it comes to the final season, the final episode, and the climax of the show. In season four, Flint is so close to getting what he spent a decade working towards, and getting his revenge, and getting his own catharsis, and it's all ripped away from him. Silver, who he's formed a close relationship with, is the one who does the betraying, and it's devastating to watch. And while we can debate back and forth about the nature of Silver and Flint's relationship, at the end of the day, the main divide in them is that Flint is stuck in his past while Silver is frantically avoiding his own. This is what makes the relationship dynamic so interesting. Sun and moon, push and pull, day and night, they're two sides of the same coin. When Flint strikes, Silver parries. When Silver swipes Flint ducks, they complete each other and they balance each other out. They're good partners except when they aren't and except when they don't. This is where the climax of the show comes in. Black Sails is a sweeping, swashbuckling, action-packed adventure series with sword fights and cannon battles and hurricanes and the climax of the show is two guys talking in the woods. I've always been taught that you know it's the climax when the question is answered. The question that drives the plot. The question the characters are seeking after. The question that's resting on the tip of the audience's tongue as they watch. While Black Sails raises many questions, there are many characters and interesting plots. There's only one character who without a doubt there would be no plot. One character who strikes the flint (laughs) that lights the entire series ablaze. So the question leading into the climax of the show is, is Flint going to succeed in his revenge against England for the death of Thomas? The answer is no. And John Silver, his trusted companion, is the one to stop him. Back to the queerness of it all. I think there's one very important detail, one very important divide between Flint and Silver that brings us to the climax of the show. James McGraw Flint is driven and defined by his queerness. John Silver is not. Whatever you believe about Silver's sexuality, he has a very different relationship with it than Flint does, at least in the text. Flint had the love of his life ripped away from him. Flint has been called a monster. Flint has been to hell and back because of who he is. Silver has not. This is the most evident in the climax when they're speaking in the woods and Flint gives his impassioned speech. Every single sentence of that speech is about his queerness, from telling the children to sticking close to their reasons, their judgment for fear of the darkness, because in the dark there be dragons. But we know that isn't true. In the dark, there is possibility. There is discovery. There is freedom in the dark. That is just so intrinsically about queerness that it's practically hitting you over the head with it. It's also worth noting that throughout the series, every major queer-centric moment takes place in the dark, in the shadows or at night. And then of course when Silver rejects the notion, says he's going through with his plan to stop Flint, blah, 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 Flint says, all of this will be for nothing. We will have been for nothing, defined by their histories, distorted to fit their narratives, until all that is left of us are the monsters in the stories they tell their children. And truly this is the moment. This is the climax of the show. Summing up Flint's character, his motivations, his fears, what he's been fighting for, summing up the thesis of the show, what this entire fucking thing has been about, about the way we view people in history whose stories have been distorted, the truth about the monsters in the stories and the way history has been warped against people of color, queer people, women, anyone who's marginalized and pushed to the side in our history books. That is what the show is about and the driving force of Flint's character and Silver says I don't care. It's so simple. He says it on an exhale, almost a whisper, and it's a gut punch. And in that moment, you know it's over. The question has been answered, and everything that happens afterwards is merely reaction to those three small words. And in that moment, it's so vital that Silver does not understand his own queerness. If there is any to discuss there, not in the same way that there is in Flint, because he does not care. He does not care if he's the monster in their stories. He does not care if he's distorted to fit their narratives. He does not care how history will remember him. He has the privilege to do so. He has not had the love of his life ripped from him because they were of the same gender. He has not been called a monster and other filthy things because of who he loved. He has not had a life defined by his sexuality. And so when Flint begs him to reconsider, to see things from his perspective, Silver says, I don't care. And it's devastating. Absolutely devastating. Considering how far these two men have come, considering everything we know about them and how their relationship has developed, considering how much you come to love these characters, considering how much you know that they love each other, Watching Black Sails, watching Flint and Silver, Silver and Flint, it's a lot like watching Romeo and Juliet. You go into it knowing what the source material is, with Treasure Island and Long John Silver searching for the treasure that Captain Flint buried. You know that something bad happened between John and James. You know it was going to be devastating because anytime you tell someone that you're watching the show, there's always a face they made an oof text message you receive, little signs that scream danger, danger, tragedy this way, but who doesn't love a tragedy so we keep watching? I bring up Romeo and Juliet in this context specifically thinking of the flashbacks that show us how close Flint and Silver have become the episode before it all blows up. In this flashback, Flint teaches Silver how to sword fight, something that's been difficult for him since he lost his leg. It's a very tender scene, with soft smiles and easy words and vulnerability shared between the two men. And it's so damn gay. It's so goddamn gay. Gay off the charts. I could rattle off any line from those scenes, from Flint's You Know My Story to Silver's You know of me all that I can bear to be known, all that is relevant to be known. That is to say, you know my genuine friendship and loyalty. Can that be enough? You know, just casual besties things. But what's important about these flashbacks is that they're spliced between the beginnings of the fallout between them. When Flint is on the island trying to hide the treasure and Silver is, oh, trying to kill him. You mix these tender, heartfelt, warm flashbacks of friendship, companionship, and the feeling of something genuine blossoming between these two men with gunfights, swords, and bloody battles. You mix all of that with the knowing that their story doesn't have a happy ending. With the knowing that something devastating is on the way, and you've got yourself a proper tragedy there. Again, I'd like to say thank you for Lainey Rose for that brilliant fucking prose. And building off of that, I want to say again why I agree with the notion that Silver Flint is a thing, but only to this point. Their story was beginning. The bond was only truly starting to form in a real and meaningful way until it was also fully falling the fuck apart. Because the ransom deal of the Urca Gold for Maddie rips James and John apart. This is not something they will ever agree on. It's not a hurdle they can get over. John will not let greed for gold take precedence over Maddie's life. And James will never let that gold fall into England's hands, not after everything he sacrificed. And so John turns against James vowing to kill him. And like Lainey said, this epic show with battles and sword fights and villages being burned to the fucking ground comes to a head with two men standing in the woods facing an impasse that they will never get over. James realizes John is leading him to his death, and he welcomes it. He stands back, he's ready to be free of Flint, finally and for good, even in death. And for a moment, we're led to believe that that's how his story ends. Until the focus of the show shifts. Right at the end, we plant Long John Silver, the man whose backstory this was always supposed to be, right in the center of the narrative. And he tells us how it truly ends. Because John does not kill James in those woods. That is where Captain Flint dies, but James McGraw? He finally gets a second chance to live. In some of the final moments of the show, as Long John Silver narrates, we see James being led in chains to a field. This is a place that we heard about a few episodes before, where wealthy families have long been sending their troublesome family members. The ones who are an embarrassment to the name who perhaps do things in the dark with other men that might get them hanged. And one man alone in one section of the field stands up, turns around, and we and James see it at the same time. It's Thomas. He's alive. And he's here, far inland where no one has ever seen an oar. Thomas is looking up and seeing the man he thought he would never see again. A man who thought him to be dead. James finally gets to shed the mad pirate captain and fall back into the arms of the man he did all of this for. They embrace, they kiss, and James finally gets his peace. And now the question posed at the end of this all is, does this count as a happy ending? He gets to walk inland to a place where no one ever seen the ocean. He gets the love of his life, Thomas, back. The queer man character gets to live and gets reunited with his lost love. But it is essentially in a prison work camp. Is this the peace Flint always wanted? Is the thesis of the show complete? Unfortunately, the fact that he's alive when the final credits roll feels like such a triumph that the queer characters rarely get to have. So I take it as a win. And there we have it. The story of Captain James Flint, queer pirate captain who refused to let the labels of the world thrust upon him define who he was. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Skip to the Gay Parts. Again, I want to give a big thanks to Lainey Rose for their contribution to this episode. It was key to this analysis. Stay tuned to this feed for a summary of Anne, Bonnie, and Max, because Black Sails has more queer characters to go around, and they all deserve their moment. Please remember to rate and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow the show's Instagram at skip to the gay parts pod or Twitter at the gay parts pod. You can also email me at skiptothegayparts@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And now to send you all out. Here's some audio of Lainey Rose reciting an incredible line from our beloved black sales. They paint the world full of shadows and then tell their children to stay close to the light. Their light, their reasons, their judgments for in the darkness. There be dragons. But it isn't true. We can prove that it isn't true. In the darkness there is discovery, there is possibility, there is freedom in the dark once someone has illuminated it, and who is as close to doing it as we are right now?